Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In five weeks, 100,000 British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions. So we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. Rogues and scoundrels all around the world, it is my great, great honor to be joined by the director, the legend, John Madden, whose new film, Operation Mincemeat, some of you may know something about. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so, uh, well... Uh, I, uh, I I follow in your humble footsteps. <laughs> I follow humbly in your footsteps, I should say, rather than your. I, I would say the exact reverse because <laughs> most of the folks who are hearing this now have heard us uh, go for hours talking about uh, the outsiders' understanding of the story of Operation Mincemeat. But I have to imagine that you experienced experienced unprecedented access, and and you had to make hard decisions about which parts of the story belong in narrative fiction. Or, or, or narrative based on reality. Uh, and, and I guess my first question would be, how did this come to you and how do you pitch it to people who are unfamiliar with the story? Well, um, it's one of those ones where uh, it's fairly easy to, to frame a kind of simple pitch of the story around w- one essential prop, <laughs> which is the dead body, obviously. Uh, right. That's something that is immediately going to interest people and stick in people's minds. It certainly stuck in mine uh, in, I didn't remember at which point I sort of became aware of it as an urban myth because I was, oh, I don't know, seven or something when... <clears throat> The Man Who Never Was came out, which is the, the movie version of Ewan Montague's own account, which obviously you'll know about, which was a heavily vetted fiction of its own, um, uh, heavily vetted by the intelligence services. who didn't really want to, the story to be told in the first place, but eventually conceded once they realized they could control that narrative and turn it to their own use. Um, uh, so... Uh, I came. I came to the project via Ben McIntyre's book, which was pressed into my hand by um, by Michelle Ashford, who who wrote the screenplay for the film, with whom I was collaborating at that point on the pilot of a series she was making about. She was writing and was the showrunner on about the sex researchers, Masters and Johnson, and um, and it sort of clicked in my head that I somehow knew about that aspect of the story, but I'd never seen the film, certainly hadn't read uh, The Man Who Never Was, Montague's own account. Um, And 
you know, in, in answer to your question, when you read the book, it's kind of a absolutely fascinating, riveting, but sort of overwhelming experience in terms of thinking about it as a possible movie, because it's such an extraordinarily sprawling story with a colossal amount of information and colossal amount of detail. And, um, and so as a, approaching it as a story, you sort of need to find a door you can knock on to get in really. And strangely, Michelle and I both had a a similar reaction to it, or she had a very particular conviction about it before all of the other things kind of rose up and enveloped us as well. It's an extraordinary story and and it's kind of unique in in terms of World War II uh, cinematic fiction. Um, it's a world you'd never seen before, really. You'd never looked at as closely as this gets to. Well, and and it is one of those stories that is so out there that that I would imagine. I know for for me, trying to express things, we we had to we had to break everything into pieces because otherwise, yeah. it, it just sounds too fantastic. Uh, yes. Did, did did you bump up against that? And 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 how how do you steer around those problems? Well, we. Did, but I, I think I have to pay a, a tribute at this point to when you say I was, you know, right in the midst of it and had, uh, you know, a- a- access to everything one could want. I mean, the access I had was to Ben's book. And by one degree of separation, Ben had access to everything he wanted because the significantly that, you know, the uh, Operation Mincemeat files were declassified along with various other documents at the time. Um, in 1996. And that in and of itself allowed things that were never intended to be public, they were never intended to be known about, um, were suddenly laid out. Well, actually in a sort of colossal pile, as uh, Ben likes to uh, demonstrate, taller than him, I think. It was just an enormous volume of material. But in particular, the debt I owe to Ben is that, you know, he's an incredibly good storyteller. And you'll know from reading the book, um, it's both overwhelming in its in its detail and its complexity and the minuteness of the ideas that they thought of to check off and so on and so forth. The creation of the fiction was extraordinarily meticulous and it wasn't so much the improbability of it as the sort of nuttiness of embracing that idea in the first place as something that might work because um, I don't remember whether I think we actually sort of underlined this ourselves in the, in the story. Uh, I didn't remember if the weather is completely validated within the book, but the idea of this, notion that actually you, you you know you you needed to find something that was demonstrable and palpable sitting on Hitler's desk that actually pointed unequivocally to what the allies were intending to do was a you know piece of intelligence that carried enormous risks um which are spelt out in the film and I don't want to offer too many spoilers here but but it, it, it doesn't actually uh, necessarily unravel the film because Admiral Godfrey in our story is the one to point out that if this does go wrong and something leaks in the story, you've blown everything. Because if it's realized that, uh, you know, if the, if the enemy consume it in such a way and realize that actually it's false, 
then it points unequivocally to the fact that Sicily is where they're going to attack. And the whole purpose of the piece of disinformation, I'm assuming your audience knows about this already. Yes. I'm to explain it now. Um, it is to protect, uh, uh, you know, a massive invasion force, which would otherwise, you know, meet Armageddon essentially with colossal loss of life. And had that happened, um, and again, this is a spoiler, so I don't even want to say. Well, but, and, and again, luckily, most of everybody hearing this has already uh, going to know about story. it. Yeah. I mean, had that happened, we would know this story very, very well. It's the fact that it didn't happen is what makes it oddly a story that not everybody knows of even now. And that's helpful to us actually in terms of the movie because nobody necessarily, as you get right down to the last uh, minutes of the film, you're not quite clear whether or not it did work or it didn't work. So, um, So I think in terms of the improbability of it, it's the idea of taking a dead body is a sort of never, I mean, it had a sort of validity, as you know, in the 20 committee, which was full of some published novelists and a lot of would be novelists, including one in particular who sits in the middle of the story who became rather well known after it. Of course. Oh, not after it, but, but 10 years later, uh, as you know, the, the, the kind of key writer of espionage fiction, um, there was a kind of uh, attraction to an idea, ideas that in, in a certain kind of literature, particularly detective literature, keeps on turning up, which is the Haversack ruse. The idea of a, of a you know, a, a poison pill found with, with significant documents in it, which looked like an extraordinary coup, but of course turned out to be false, which uh, is basically I- the element of the idea. I, I think that's one of the things that struck me very, very much. I've, I've, I've watched the movie twice now, and uh, there are two uh, storytelling beats that um, uh, I, I admire very much. Uh, one is that uh, uh, what, what to a casual viewer may appear to be uh, military chatter all those details are a hundred percent accurate and, yeah. and what may end up as just one throwaway line is in fact, its own amazing story in there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and also, uh, uh, obviously, uh, when, at the end of the day, you have to, you have to make a compelling narrative. So, uh, in this case, we see a little bit of time flexibility, like all the pieces are there. They're maybe just rearranged in order. Um, could, could you tell me about both of those decisions, the decisions to uh, keep the specifics in there and, and also uh, what it was like to, to play a, a, a little bit? With it. Well, be a little bit more specific about what those are. You're obviously very careful about your own spoilers, but go ahead and explain well, what those well, are. Well, I mean, uh, uh, for example, even the casual mention, of, I think Haversack Ruse is, it only shows up as one line. But of course, mm-hmm. you know, if most people don't even know what that is, but it just reads as like, uh, oh, military talk, something, something. Thing. Yes. But 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 of course, you know, the Haversack ruse, we we uh, uh, in, in our telling of it, uh, we had to explain the whole idea of, you know, false information buried in what appears to be an abandoned bag and so on. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I would love to hear about your process about figuring out what of those moments made it uh, into the final version. Well, I think that it's it, it, the, the, the things that so there's two two things, two ways of answering that, which may uh 
you know, one falls sort of slightly outside the, the, the genre or the zone that you're dealing with, particularly about, you know, cons, um, so forth, but one falls right into it. So one of the tasks of this was to manage the amount of information that the audience needs to be aware of in order to understand from a standing start, no knowledge whatsoever of the world we're dealing with, how intelligence operated at that time, uh, what the purpose of intelligence was, and so forth. Um, So you actually had to clear the decks to a degree just to kind of, um, you know, navigate your way through that or allow an audience to navigate their way through it without getting hung up on the procedure too much. Um, And the answer is a slightly left-handed answer to your question, but let's take the example of the Haversack ruse. There was something that was sort of irresistible in the story that was also true, which was that these people were sort of professional spinners of fiction. I mean, you think of, okay, this is an espionage story. Most people think of espionage as being a calling, a job for life, you know, people who did nothing else but uh, pass themselves off as somebody they're not supposed to be. This was an entirely specialized uh, implementation of espionage, which had to do with feeding false information to the enemy to try and uh, confuse the enemy or deceive the enemy of what allied intentions might have been. Um, But in the midst of all of this, the people who were actually concocting these ideas and dreaming up the schemes and trying to find ways of doing it were themselves involved in the creation of fiction, specifically collective fiction. That's what the 20 Committee was. It was the nerve center of ideas. So they would strategize a particular idea about how a piece of information would arrive in enemy hands. And was that from a trusted uh, spy already established within a network or had that sky, you know, was there reason to believe that that spy's cover had been blown in some way? It's all these kind of things. Sure. So we, we realized and picked up on very quickly the kind of um, irresistible notion that they're all writers. They're all storytellers in the midst of this. Uh, even, you know, Chumley is the one who who is infuriated by the fact that you you can't move for writers in the world that he's in. He was a very meticulous, details man who was not in that zone. Montague hadn't written at that point, but of course became became his own novelist once he told the story of it. And and so we sort of came at the idea of establishing the idea for the story via something that was true, which is the Trout Memo which was compiled by uh, by Ian Fleming, who was then working as an assistant to uh, the head of Godfrey. intelligence, Godfrey. Yeah, exactly. And so once we decided on that route, the whole idea of the nature of the fiction and the beginning of the fiction rose out of that idea um, because our way into it really was that it, this is actually what the story is. It's the creation of a fiction that has to be passed off as truth. and. In particular, our film goes into the way in which the creators of the fiction themselves uh, start to govern the way the fiction develops. And uh, and eventually those people get lost in the fiction that they're creating. And having created the fiction, they lose control of what they're doing completely because 
though they've done their damnedest to make the whole idea completely watertight, if that's the correct expression, or an idea that floats, let's put it another way, they actually can't guarantee that. And, and you know, the, the story starts to unfold in a way that, again, you couldn't quite make up all the pieces that they've meticulously put into place about how the material would land in Adolf Klaus's hands because he was such a brilliant operator and had the whole espionage, you know, all of his contacts sewn up in Huelva, which is one of the reasons why they chose Huelva and so on. He never got anywhere near them because of a different set of circumstances, mainly having to do with the, uh, you know, the post-mortem and so on and so forth. Um, so <clears throat> I think that we, we do, you're absolutely correct, um, feather into the storytelling certain key elements of it and um, and just feed that into the audience's sort of awareness very early on. Uh, you know, the notion immediately of, which is Hester's contribution in the story, that if they're going to create a believable fiction, then there has to be a love interest. These are ideas that obviously an audience, a cinema audience, will immediately click to just simply, apart from anything else, you know, the, the employment of the terms involved. Well, and, and, uh, yeah, go sorry, go ahead. Along those lines, I was really struck by the, the wonderful inverse parallel because, um, uh, you know, when you're constructing a false narrative that's made up of pocket litter and letters on a dead body washing ashore, yeah. uh, the uh, one of the things I would imagine that the 20 committee worried about is being too on the nose, having too perfect a narrative, yes. complete with a love story and an yes. incomplete hero's journey and so on. Whereas yeah. meanwhile, as a director, I would imagine that you are strongly pulled to how do we get this to a classic narrative with a love story, something that audience well, I suppose so. I mean, understand. again, actually, you know, the the the, the documents in in the uh, aforementioned you know four foot high pile of uh, documents that were there actually contained those stories. Um, I, I, there was you know a mountain of evidence that certainly right about a mountain of evidence. There was certainly very clear evidence that the uh, relationship between Bill and Pam was fleshed out in exactly the way that we actually show it in the story. Um, meaning that the, they kind of role played the various characters. Uh, he always referred to Monty always referred to Gene Leslie as Pam long after the whole event was over and so on and so forth. He had that particular photograph on his shaving mirror, which his mother spotted on his shaving mirror. We didn't see the mother in our version of the film. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Um, and, 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 uh, and actually wrote a letter to uh, her daughter-in-law in America and said, I think it's time you came home. <laughs> so none of, none of that was, uh, but you're absolutely right. And, and actually Ben points it out that, that, you know, they are almost on the nose, some of those, the sentiments expressed there, but they weren't really in a certain kind of a way. I mean, I have an, uh, a, a, an angle into this because my own stepmother, who was my mother for a long part of my life, really, because my own mother died very young or relatively young in my life. And it's a great pity to me that she never lived to see this film. She died a year and a half ago um, because she was my witness to all of this. And particularly the romantic aspect of it. You know, one of the most significant war films for me was A Brief Encounter. And that is about a a relationship that never was, Uh, but nevertheless of such vividness that it's sort of unforgettable. And actually that occupies the space in this film, you know, in, in exactly that way. I mean, we're off topic here a little bit in terms of deception, but nevertheless, <clears throat> I love the idea that these people who were spending their lives deceiving people end up deceiving themselves. The, you know, the characters in the film, or at least in terms of Montague and Jean Leslie, are not aware of what's happening to them. It actually is only triggered, their awareness of it is only triggered when the third part of the equation is actually convinced that something is going on, which isn't going on. And, and that they're just those sort of layers of the way the, the story reflects itself emotionally in the kind of deceptions that they're actually intent on creating just made it a very interesting piece. Uh, there's a couple of moments that uh, you happen to mention things that, that, that we had discussed in our telling of the story, uh, among, yep. uh, which would, would be, uh, we often say here that the, the con man's gift is the asymmetry, the asymmetry of time. He gets to spend uh, years or months leading up to this tableau, that first impression. Uh, but then there's this moment of surrender. And then yeah. the victim of a con really only has their gut instinct to go on. Um, exactly right. And, 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 and one of the things I appreciate so much about this movie is that we see just the incredible lengths to which people uh, uh, factor in every possibility. Uh, uh, were, was there ever a temptation at any part in, in production to depict Hitler looking at a, a, a stack of papers on his desk and trying to I, decide? I, well, I, I suppose you, we have a surrogate for that in, in the story, which is an imagined scene. Right. 
but in the magic of film, you never have to say whether it's imagined or whether it's actually literally true. Uh, you know, at the moment of uh, existential dread that suddenly, uh, uh, you know, envelop the central characters when they fear that actually the the deception has been exposed, I mean, correctly fear it, in our version of the story, they there's a line that Montague, where they essentially grasp at the idea, well, maybe it's fallen into the right hands because if our suspicions or rumours, they're no more than rumours at that point, that there is an anti-Hitler faction, if they've fallen into the hands of that anti-Hitler faction, then possibly the outcome will be a good one. And and uh, Montague's response to that is the line, that's either true or it's a fiction that we want to be true, which exactly... Uh, you know, it, it, it explodes the moment that you're talking about. Right. Which is, and so the question of whether or not we were tempted to show Hitler looking at them, we actually have that at one remove, really. I mean, Hitler is a dangerous character to introduce into a movie. 100%. Uh, and it was, or, uh, it was not a temptation I was ever wanting to go towards in any way. Uh, just simply because you sort of ex- blow the, the, your own story out of the water because he's too big an idea to encompass as an also ran uh, in the story, particularly in a very late intervention like that. But on the other hand, uh, von Roerner is a character you can see, not a character right. we necessarily know, and we know just in the trappings of where he is, how close he is to the centre of everything that's going on. And it always seemed interesting to me not to tell people something is true, let them try and guess whether it's true or not, which is exactly the situation that the characters are in. You know, navigating your way through a fiction that you're presented, which is essentially what happens to an audience watching a film, is precisely what the subject of this film is. It's it's about guesswork and following hunches and, oh, I think that person did it. No, I think that person did it and so forth. <clears throat> That's part of the pleasure of watching a film like this is how the, what actually happens is not what you'd expect at all. Um, and, well, and, and, and the fact that there are so many unanswered questions, uh, like, like, I mean, uh, even – the best historians have unanswered questions of at this course, point. Of course, there are still unanswered questions, still controversies that are going on. You know, was it was was it really a Welsh tramp, the body, and you know, and so on and so forth. Well, and, and even the question of whether or not uh, uh, Glendower or Michael uh, committed suicide or just was so hungry he ate some bread and, you know, yeah. didn't know that there was rat poison in it. Precisely. Uh, 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 the, the, these are... Uh, and and I suppose you know when you when you need to keep things moving along in a film, uh, and and tell a story of intrigue and affection and storytelling, and also the fate of the free world, uh, yeah. you, you don't get to linger as much as I assume everyone. No, you would don't. Like. And I, I but I think that one of the interesting things about this was definitely the challenge of making it as a screenplay is the way one one stage of the situation gives way to another, gives way to another, gives way to another, and what's happening throughout all of that of course, is the deepening awareness you have of the stakes that are actually involved and how intense uh, and and sort of uh, disorienting the importance of what they're doing is and indeed, most crucially, the risks of it going wrong. Um, 
but you're right. You do. It, I, 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 we spotted that immediately that you have to move through this story quickly. And indeed, it's got a ticking clock. I mean, right. They had to come up with it, and there was nobody more impatient than Churchill to have them getting on with it. You know, to get on with it even before they were possibly completely ready to do it. But um, uh, that's very helpful. Uh, I I rather adored the. Um kind of uh, like, like like you said earlier, all the elements are there and they're all accurate. Uh, but, you know, you have to decide what order to tell them for for narrative punch and uh, opening with let's start. Well, let's find a body. Uh, yeah. uh, ob- obviously, I was like, uh, but 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 uh, I loved what that did. It made it very ris- visceral and very real. The, yeah. the grim task that uh, Chumley and Montague were about to embark upon. Yes, exactly. Well, and there's another important thing. I mean, it's obviously to some extent a kind of a comical idea. It's almost like, you know, the finding of the body or particularly the the use they try to put the body to to come up with a. And I'm so glad that that you you actually depicted their attempts to take photos. I know. Well, it's straight out of a Monty Python story, isn't it, really? Um, but, uh, But again, I really liked that about the, the the well the outlines of the story really that of course the idea of what the moment you introduce a dead body into the center of a plan there's you know gallows humor is just lurking around every corner all the time and but interestingly it was a way of putting into the center of the story the kind of emotional make weight of the whole film which is the weirdly the fiction that they create attaches to a real person attaches to a man who never had a life. I mean, never had a life that was worth celebrating or was important or had anything to do with his own volition. And I I think Um, that that definitely comes through when uh, uh, his sister, I believe shows up and reminds mm -hmm. us that this is a human being when Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. uh, we have the tender moment of sending the body adrift, when we have the uh, modification of, of the gravestones and so on. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 It's uh, that that's the emotional story that sort of lies underneath the whole thing in a funny kind of a way. uh, And uh, so, so there was one moment, uh, that that was in the book, and I I I would imagine that it just wouldn't fit emotionally for where we are in the movie. Yeah, I, I personally was fascinated by the tale of Whoopsie Doodle. This uh, this canister can't be sunk. Uh, yes, this, this almost slapstick moment at, at at the the height of of the most important part of the journey. I know, I know. You know, it's just a kind of uh, diversion and footnote that, of course, you can you can pull off in a in a book. And it was ridiculous. I mean, they, but of course, in our story, it's quite obvious that we're going to go with the body rather right. than <laughs> right. go back to the canister. They can't get to sink. <laughs> you know, it's constructed so brilliantly to keep, you know, uh, uh, decomposition out, but they couldn't actually dispose of it. There are many things like that. I mean, we had to get rid of the whole character as Spilsbury, for example, who considered himself the only, uh, uh, you know, forensic, not um, it's the word I'm looking for, you know, uh, uh, I'm suddenly losing the, the, the term for it. But anyway, the person who could actually 
uh, study bodies and figure out how they died. Oh, the the the, the coroner. Exactly. Well, coroner. Yes, absolutely. We now call him something different, don't we? I'm trying to remember what it is. Anyway, that character was a supremely arrogant man. He said, "Well, the only person who would be able to tell how this body died would be me, and there's nobody like me who exists anywhere in Spain. So, you've got no worries whatsoever." Uh, so. Um, it, it occurs to me that you're in a bit of a unique position at this moment in that most of the people listening to this discussion uh, have already gotten the broad strokes of, of the, the story. Uh, what, and, and obviously most people who are watching it, this is their first exposure to the narrative, but, yeah. but knowing that, that people are familiar with the facts, uh, what is it that you're hoping most people will discover in, in your telling of this version? I guess, uh, you know, in a way, there is a sense in which it is the story of unsung heroes, you know, people who who were working with every, you know, sinew of their body and every part of their brain and uh, their own emotional commitment to something that was absolutely as crucial as any other effort, you know, and then war is made up of endless versions of those stories. But this is, um, uh, I suppose, kind of modern sort of story in the sense that it, it's it's a part of the war we don't know that much about. And, and in a funny kind of a way, what I liked about the story and which makes it kind of modern to me in a way is that once they've done this sort of heroic act of creating this um, extraordinary thing, they're plunged into a world where they're suddenly detached from it, as we talked about, uh, that that they don't have any control over it and have to watch aghast as it looks as if it might go wrong in its very first moments. Um, and uh, until a, a, a ghastly possibility seems to occur that actually it's blown. And... And therefore, we're characteristically in terms of war stories, again, this is slightly um, at a tangent from your particular um, uh, issue with, uh, you know, exploding cons and so forth, is that um, that uh, you arrive at, instead of, instead of what we think of as you know, heroes and villains, winners and losers, uh, and mighty feats of, of combat, you have two people who feel almost irrelevant to what has occurred because, of course, really, the people who are fighting the war physically and on the front line and in the face of the most overwhelming odds, which I think an audience feels at the end of this film, because the contrast with them down in their bunker, unaware of what's going on, um, leaves them as sort of irrelevant to, to what they've achieved at the end. There's no sense that they're being or able to look upon themselves as heroes, at least in our version of the story, that they haven't don't seem to have saved themselves, even though they saved some other lives. They feel kind of hollowed out by it. That felt a very interesting emotion to me at the end. I'm not saying it was necessarily true, you know, uh, I, but, but, but I, but I would agree. I, I think that there is, you know, as we call it, that moment of surrender, that moment that it's out of your hands and this, this lottery ticket is either going to pay off or not. And you yeah. have to sit there uncomfortably waiting for a teletype to, to give you the message. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I adored this movie so much. I adored the fact that uh, we have these, these core archetypes of, of uh, in Chumley, we have the sort of uh, nerd mechanic who maybe uh, is a li- little bit too on the nose by naming his project, Project Trojan, Trojan Horse. We yes. have Montague who brings a sense of heart and poetry, maybe a bit too much as he finds himself entangled yeah. uh, with, yeah. uh, with, with Gene, uh, who, who's the, the, the face and, and, and joie de vivre of the character, but also the voice of Pam uh, yeah. in the form of Hester. Uh, yeah. uh, all of it, I, I think it, it becomes so approachable so quickly and, and your ability to, to tell this story visually uh, is, is just fantastic. Oh, great. Well, I'm very pleased to hear it. Very pleased to hear. It. I, I, I do have one uh, long standing issue. Um, we, we noticed that, uh, one of the actors in this story uh, uh, was also in a depiction of a uh, of a fraud that took place on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and we yes. <laughs> looked up online, and we uh, I just need a final answer: Is it Matthew McFadian or McFadian? Because we said it both ways, and we don't know which one is right. McFadian. 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 Finally, yes. we have a real answer. <laughs> <laughs> Happy to be able to provide it. Uh, uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm so, so thrilled that you're bringing the story to so many people available on Netflix uh, in the United States, May 11th. Is that right? I believe that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you again for your time. Uh, No, thank you. Very enjoyable discussion. (laughs) All right. Take care. Special thanks to Netflix for hooking us up with a pre-release copy of Operation Mincemeat. It was just a blast. Special thanks also to John Madden for spending time out of his busy, busy schedule to chat with us. I know what you're thinking. Let's talk season three. And the good news is we are already in pre-pre-production and we are so excited that I can't say a dang thing about it. This is the part where we deeply appreciate all of you fabulous patrons over at patreon.com slash greatest con. You are making it possible for us to do our first boots on the ground investigation. Original reporting It's going to be big. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be unpredictable. And it's all because of you guys. We're going to keep you updated as soon as we can, but I'm not going to lie. We're going to be quiet for a little bit. Meanwhile, share with your friends. Write us directly at worldsgreatestcon at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.